The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 7 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC7. This is Secret Church 7, Episode 9. And we're about to look at some controversial questions here and think about some of the things that are out there today. But I want to encourage you, before we even go to some of the things that we may not know definitively, we can camp out on what we do know definitively. In our battle, in your battle with spiritual warfare, I want to encourage you to camp out on the things that we just walked through. Let that be your focus. And I emphasize that because, well, listen to what one scholar expert on spiritual warfare wrote. He said, dealing with territorial spirits, territorial spirits is major league warfare and should not be undertaken casually. I know few who have the necessary expertise and if you do not know what you're doing, Satan will eat you for breakfast. And I want to say to you as loudly and as clearly as possible, that is not true. God's power in spiritual warfare is not fine to experts. It is available to every man or woman who is found in Christ and knows Christ. And when you are in Christ, Christ is in you and Christ is in God, then Satan is not eating you for breakfast. And there's not some technique you need to find. You're not going to turn into toast. You are victorious based on all the things we've just seen in the New Testament. Okay. Controversial questions. Okay. What is this? What are you, like, you just shot down all these ideas about deliverance ministry, what, casting out demons. What in the world? Okay, think about this. What about deliverance ministry? Deliverance ministry, what I mean by that, involves the practice of casting out demons. Now, I'll be honest. Obviously, this is, this is not a common practice around here at Brook Hills. Um, on the other, other hand, I have been in, in a variety of contexts around the world where this is a common practice most recently. This last year, I spent some time in India, and without going too specifically into some of the circumstances that I found myself in, this was a very common thing, and saw it being practiced in a variety of different ways. And I know, I know that there are a variety of different situations around the world. And again, I'm not saying to know all of those experiences, but I want us to think through the truth of God's Word that allows us to think through these experiences. Now, an example, when it comes to examples, clearly beyond any shadow of a doubt, Jesus and apostles in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, we see them casting out demons. So based on all that we've seen, what are we supposed to think about casting out demons? Well, first, I think in some of these emphases, there's a number of positives that come from highlights on, of demonic activity. Deliverance ministries remind us of the reality of the spiritual world around us. Remind us not to forget, not to be engrossed in an empty rationalism. Deliverance ministries challenge the idea that personal problems can be reduced to purely psychological, social, physiological, or circumstantial factors. There's definitely something deeper going on here. There is a battle waging for our souls. And along those lines, deliverance ministries often emphasize prayer and other biblical modes of spiritual warfare. And there, there's a variety. There's a whole spectrum. So these are good things. At the same time, I do think there are potential problems. One is extremism. Going to extremes, much like C.S. Lewis warned against. Fanaticism. Confusion. I 
think fundamentally causing confusion about major issues like the gospel by focusing on minor issues that take center stage. Experientialism, letting experience determine truth instead of letting truth interpret experience. And then blame shifting. What I mean by that is the devil made me do it kind of mentality. So there are two main arguments for deliverance ministry. And they're pretty simple. Number one, Jesus and the disciples did it. And number two, the Bible never forbids it. So, do you want to be like Jesus? The Bible doesn't say not to do it. So unless we're prejudiced against the supernatural, then of course, okay, seems pretty rock solid. Let's, let's engage in this. And when I look at Scripture and I look at much of the picture that's associated with deliverance ministry, I think there are two major errors in these arguments for deliverance ministry. First, Deliverance ministry advocates often fail to distinguish between moral evil and natural evil. Casting out demons in cases of moral evil, something that is not taught or illustrated anywhere in Scripture. What you will find in literature and thinking about this subject in our day is that almost all of deliverance ministry is focused on casting demons out of people in issues of moral evil, sin. There's a whole catalog of demons that need to be cast out. Anger, lust, pride, fear, unbelief so on and so on. But as we have seen, this is not what Jesus is doing in the New Testament. It's not in the Old Testament. It's not in the Gospels. It's not in the letters of the New Testament. We don't see it. Even in, well, <coughs> I don't have time to go through Acts 8 and Acts 26 here, but the picture is, in response to moral evil, it's not casting out. It's calling people to repent. It's what's going on with Simon, the sorcerer here in Acts 8. It's the picture of how people were coming to Christ among the Gentiles in Acts 26. So, there's a failure to distinguish between moral and evil and natural evil. We've talked about that. Second, often they fail to account for the discontinuities that exist between us and Christ. Now, we talked about some of the differences between the ministry of Christ and our ministry. Jesus is doing some unique things when he is... Speaking to wind and waves, calling people to get up and live, taking coins out of fish's, fish's mouth, bringing down food from heaven. He's doing some unique things. He's revealing his identity in the way he's bringing about healings living. And the thing is, he never gives us a command to cast out demons. We talked about that. Instead, he preaches a gospel of repentance, faith, love, and he says nothing about how we need to cast out demons of ourselves or others as we grow in him. The focus was on repentance and faith. As a result, that just kind of sums up where we were earlier. I would put before us two major cautions regarding deliverance ministry. Number one, there is no direct command in scripture to do deliverance ministry. Even to relieve suffering. But there are numerous direct commands in scripture to do personal ministry using the word of God to call people to repent of sin and trust in Christ, and turn to Christ. The only place that you could go to is Mark chapter 16, which is a whole nother evening worth of discussions to have when we talk about snakes and deadly poisons. So, probably not the best text to go to. There's not a command in scripture to do deliverance ministry, even to relieve suffering, but there are commands everywhere to do personal ministry, using the word of God to call people to repent, sin, and turn to Christ. That was the way of the Old Testament saints. 
It was the way of Christ. It was the way of the New Testament church. Repent of sin, turn to Christ. And this is, this is the picture. I'm not, I, I hope, I pray, I'm not trying to simplify things to accommodate, accommodate a Western worldview that's uncomfortable with this or that. But look at Scripture. Jesus clearly does not put focus on we need to go out and do this or that and the New Testament letters from Romans to Revelation don't address this. This is where the New Testament, much like the Old Testament, was, was not accommodating occultic worldviews around it. We would think, we would expect there to be more, but there's not. And when we take it there, we may be becoming more pagan in our worldviews than we are biblical. Second, we must make sure to follow scripture's emphasis. Now, let me pause real quick. That's not to say that demons aren't real and the demons aren't in people and the demons don't need to be cast out of people. That's not what's been said. What's been said is we're never commanded in scripture to do this. That this is not the front lines of spiritual warfare. We'll get to that in a second. Second, we must make sure to follow scripture's emphasis on personal responsibility, particularly regarding moral evil. When you read different accounts that some of counselors who talk about deliverance ministry, they talk about people like uh, oh, a man or a woman, like they're the nicest, sweetest person in the world, but then they're just tormented by this, this demon of lust or anger or pride. And it's this disconnect. And this is the whole point. The problem is not outside. The problem is inside in our hearts. And we need cleansing at the core of who we are. This is the gospel. And when we undercut the human responsibility for sin, we undercut the power of the gospel. The Bible often talks about our responsibility without mentioning the devil. But the Bible never talks about the devil without mentioning our responsibility. In other words, in the picture there is in James God cannot be, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when by his own evil, evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Even when you look at Judas, you see the influence of Satan, obviously on Judas, but then you come to the picture, end of the picture there, and Judas was acting here. He's making choices. He's responsible for his sin. Ananias and Sapphira, responsible for their sin. We see over and over in the New Testament that man, men and women are responsible for their sins. And any ministry that seeks to put responsibility for sin outside of the human heart is missing the point of the gospel. The problem is here. We need to be changed from the inside out. We need to be restored and redeemed from the inside out. Which, speaking of restoration, this is an interesting thought regarding deliverance ministry. When it comes to deliverance ministry, the only thing the New Testament definitively addresses is delivering an unrepentant Christian to Satan. 1 Corinthians 5.5, deliver the unrepentant, immoral brother over to Satan. 1 Timothy 1, same picture. So, with those cautions then, with those cautions, how do we respond to moral evil? Please hear me. The last thing I want to do is minimize what Satan is doing. He is active. He is involved in tempting us to sin and pull us away and destroy us. I hope that's been clear. He's enticing our flesh, deceiving us. So what do we do in response to moral evil in our lives and in other lives? We recognize Satan's power to influence us morally. He is a lion that is looking to devour us. But at the same time, we need to recognize, focus on our responsibility to repent personally. To cry out for his forgiveness. 
Cry out for his power. Take up his word. Stand in his righteousness. Walk in his righteousness. Constantly in prayer. This is spiritual warfare. What about natural evil? What about natural evil? How do we respond when, when we go into a village around the world or even here and someone is in the same way that they would be, just like in scripture, in the same way they'd be paralyzed or sick or have a fever, that they are tormented by an evil spirit? Is that possible? Certainly it's possible. So what do we do? How do we respond? Well, look at this picture of how, remember how Jesus responded when people needed healing? How do we respond when people need healing? What has Christ said that we are to do when people are sick and suffering? We talked about this a couple of secret churches ago. Remember the purpose of healings. God heals in ways that authenticate the gospel. Healings authenticate the gospel. They remove hindrances to ministry and healings glorify God. And so what the New Testament has told us to do, if someone is being tormented by a demon, evil spirit, not talking about spirit of lust, spirit of pride, spirit of, that's, we've gone beyond that. It's moral evil. Repent, turn to Christ. But a natural evil, focus on prayer for healings. Pray to God for deliverance from sickness, suffering, do the same in cases of natural evil and seeming demonic spirits. We pray for healing. And this is the picture we even see in Mark chapter nine. Pray for healings. Pray with purpose for healings. Pray for the advancement of the gospel. God, do this for the advancement of the gospel, for success in ministry, for the glory of God and listed examples there. Pray with purpose for healings and pray with faith for healings. Because the reality is, James five, pray with faith Prayer of a righteous man, powerful and effective. The kingdom is here. When Jesus brought, when Jesus healed people, it was a picture. The kingdom of God is here, standing in front of you. I'm the king. I have power over these sicknesses. And what God does through Christ, the power of Christ, is every once in a while, he gives us foretastes of the kingdom to come. But realize that the kingdom is coming. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, don't miss this. Satan tormented Paul. thorn in the flesh. Did Paul rebuke Satan, bind Satan, cast Satan out? He trusted in God. He prayed that God would remove it. But God said, no. God said, I have a design in what this messenger of Satan is doing in your life. And you can trust me. And you're going to see that my strength and my grace are sufficient in your weakness. Paul goes casting out this demon, misses the whole design of God. So, summarize, when it comes to deliverance ministry, we do not see a direct command in Scripture to do this. We don't see a direct command. Instead, we see the New Testament filled with commands to do personal ministry, using the Word of God to call people to turn and trust in Christ in cases of moral evil, and then in cases of natural evil, it is... It is commanded for us to pray, to call out to God, to bring healing from sickness, suffering, even spirits that torment men and women. Pray to God. Can a Christian be demon-possessed? Most voices in the spiritual warfare movement today would say yes. One author wrote, a genuine Christian may become possessed at least to some degree by a demon. Merrill, Merrill Unger wrote a book called What Demons Can Do to Saints. And he said, who dares assert that a demon spirit will not invade the life of a believer? 
in which the Holy Spirit has been grieved by serious and persistent sin and quenched by flagrant disobedience. A demon enters as a squatter and an intruder. And as the believer fails to walk by faith, he falls into sin, which if it's not confessed and curbed, may ultimately result in the forfeiture of the Holy Spirit's power to shield him from demonic evasion. The demon can come in. So what does the word say about this? Now some automatically just quip, well, um, if my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, then obviously the demon could not live there. But that's, that's really not sufficient because, well, if, if just because the Holy Spirit is there means the demon can't be there and God is omnipresent with his spirit and his spirit is everywhere, then that would mean demons couldn't be anywhere. Does that make sense at 12 o'clock, nine? Okay, so the picture is it's just, it's not quite that easy. So what does the Bible say about demon possession and the Christian? Well, there's some confusion in terms because demon possession never appears in the Bible. We don't see that word in the Greek, that word for possession used attached to demon's control over someone. So many people have started using the term demonized, being influenced or even overtaken by a demon. So the question really is, to what degree can a Christian come under the influence of a demonic spirit? And the answer is, based on what we've already seen in Scripture, the Christian belongs to Christ and is indwelled by the Spirit of God. A demon cannot own a Christian. Issue of ownership is settled in your heart, Christian. A demon cannot own a Christian and a demon cannot control a Christian. However, clearly, Christians can be influenced and or attacked by demons to varying degrees. Obviously, we can be tempted by demons, Luke 4. Obviously, the picture here is Satan so filled the heart of Ananias that he lied to the Holy Spirit. We talked about 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Saul was tormented by a demon. And Ephesians 4 talks about how the devil can gain a foothold. Now, this is where, this is where the, some of that flattening and fragmentation happens because sometimes people will take all these different passages, put them next to each other and say, okay, this is where it starts. First, we're tempted by a demon. And then if, if we give into that temptation, then we give a foothold to Satan. And then if there's a foothold to Satan, then that can develop into a stronghold. And then if you have a stronghold, then that can develop into possession. So we've gone from Matthew chapter four to Ephesians chapter four to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 to Mark chapter five and just put them next to each other and said, this is how Satan works. It's very common but it's not good understanding of scripture. The picture is, yes, Satan can tempt, torment, influence Christians in many different ways, but scripture never pictures someone casting a demon out of a Christian, not once. There is no clear example in the Bible where a demon ever inhabited or controlled a true believer and it needed to be cast out of them. Never once. Christ and the apostles are the only ones that we even see casting out demons. And in every instance, they're dealing with unbelievers. So can a demon be possessed by, can a Christian be possessed by a demon? Absolutely not. So then, should we talk with demons? I've read pages and pages, story after story, listened to different accounts of conversations with demons people have had here and around the world. And, you know, I came across one that was just totally out there. Start working with your higher self and guides, Sananda, an archangel, the archangel Sananda, or an ascended master, all you need to do is invite them in. You don't need to know how, how to formally med meditate or channel to do this. Just relax in a setting of, or a laying position and state your intention to work with the angel. As you become sensitive to your higher self's energy, you can set up a communication system with them. When you can feel their energy strongly, you can then ask them questions and get responses through their energy. 
Now, that's, that's, I, don't, I don't even know if that's Christian. That's way out there. But it makes me ask the question. If you start talking about conversations with demons, this or that, stuff that we don't see in Scripture, then where is the dividing line between what we're saying is, is Christian and what's way out here over like this? It's a slippery slope. It's a very slippery slope. All of a sudden, the way we're talking about spiritual warfare in Christianity is far more pagan than it is biblical. And if I can be honest, this is one of the pictures that I think I've seen around the world. What does scripture say about conversing with demons? Scripture includes specific commands not to have anything to do with evil spirits or their mediums. Verse after verse that says that. Scripture warns against the danger of addressing seducing spirits warns against the danger of addressing them. Jesus often demanded demons silence. He told them to be quiet instead of stay around for a conversation for a while. Most often, Jesus cast out demons immediately. Immediately, he spoke a word and they were gone. So that's what scripture does say about conversing with demons. What does scripture say about naming demon, demons? Should we come up for... Names for demons like anger and hate and pride and lust and legion or Larry or Bob. The New Testament nowhere mentions a strategy for naming evil spirits. Mark 5 is the only text, proof text people go to for that when Jesus said, what is your name? What's Jesus doing here? Is he teaching us to a pastoral method for getting demons' names? No. Realize even here Jesus got a number more than a name. It's not what he's after there. We spend a lot of time bringing a lot of things out of Mark 5, 9 that are not there. What does scripture say about binding demons? Matthew 12, 29 is the scripture that's most often used to refer to binding demons. But we mentioned this earlier. This strong man house binding, the house is the world here. The strong man is Satan. The possessions are people whom Jesus is saving, robbing the devil, and the tying up is the work of Christ. This is a picture of what Christ has done on the cross. This passage definitively does not teach us to bind evil spirits. The other two passages people will go to are Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, neither of which are talking about binding evil spirits. They're talking about the community of faith. Passages both talking about people being either inside or outside of the community of faith. Church authority, church discipline, not spirits being inside or outside of individuals. Total misinterpretations. Well, what does scripture say about engaging territorial spirits? Going around the city and region and territory and calling down spirits. Scripture gives little direct teaching about angelic spirits over cities, territories, regions, or nations. Obviously, we got the picture from Daniel chapter 10. But we never see Jesus, John, Peter, James, or Paul ever attempting to take on a territorial spirit. Never. When you think Jesus would go out into Jerusalem, there's territorial spirits, like call them out, get them out of there. Doing with all these cities where churches were being planted, we don't see it. So what does scripture say about conversations in spiritual warfare? I think scripture is abundantly clear. Number one, pray to God. This is so anticlimactic. But it's not. It's strong. This is where our power is found. 
pray in the spirit on all kinds of occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. This is spiritual warfare. Pray, pray, pray. This is what the New Testament church did. When they faced warfare, they didn't go out wandering the streets calling out demons and binding them in territories and this or that. They went out proclaiming the gospel. After they gathered together, they prayed, help us, enable us to proclaim the gospel with great boldness. Then they went out and they gave their lives doing it. That was spiritual warfare. Pray to God and don't pray to demons. One of the most common phrases in this whole picture of spiritual warfare is warfare prayer. People who teach during prayer, you should say things like in a prayer of rebuke, we break demons hold on a person. We contain their power. We eliminate their presence. We say in the name of Jesus, I rebuke you evil spirit. You have no part in this person's life. Where is that in scripture? Where is that in scripture? Is a prayer of rebuke biblical? Think about it. Who is a prayer of rebuke addressed to? Demon. Don't, don't pray to demons. Pray to God. Talk to God. You call the God of the universe who has authority over all demons, over everything. You don't start throwing the blood of Christ on different things. That is not your prerogative. This is the prerogative of God to apply his blood for the forgiveness of sins. So we call out to God. We pray to God, not praying to demons. Imagine somebody counseling Job. I bind this demon in you, Job, this and this and this and this. No, no. Don't forget, this was fulfilling the purpose of God. I remember I was went for one conference where I was doing, and the conference where I was preaching, and something went wrong at the end of the night, and we were going to this worship gathering, and it was kind of the climax of the whole deal, and all the power went out, and so everybody went running around, spiritual warfare, spiritual warfare, Satan's turned the lights out, and, and everybody was so concerned, and what happened is we ended up having this incredible worship gathering by candlelight, and after we finished, after we finished, the lights came back on. And it's, there's a problem when we see spiritual warfare as things that mess up our plans and our programs. And we start attributing everything to this or that instead of just falling on our face and saying, God, you're in control of every single one of these details. And I'm gonna trust in you. We're gonna seek after you. We're gonna trust that you're gonna bring whatever this is. I don't, I don't know how to explain whatever's going on, but I'm gonna trust that you're gonna use it for your glory. Prayer addresses God, not Satan and demons. Can we acquire or inherit demons from other places or people? This one really hit home with me. One, other, one author suggested warfare praying for adopted children. He said that you need to pray over a child that's been adopted. You need to cancel out all demonic working that has been passed on to them from their ancestors. Cancel every curse that may have been put on them. Is there a biblical basis for that? With my adopted son? Most common proof text for ancestral spirits is Exodus 25. But the Simple meaning of this text is sin has consequences and sin will be judged. Does your sin affect your children? Absolutely it does. Because they see sin modeled in you and they feel the consequences, the effects of your sin. But nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible is there an example of a Christian who inherits demons from his ancestors. There's a lot of talk about intergenerational familial spirits, but this idea has no direct biblical support. Does my 
son from Kazakhstan need warfare prayer? Absolutely not. But he needs prayer from me day and night, day and night, that he would come to Christ, that he would be drawn to Christ, that he would experience the love and the beauty and the mercy of Christ. And I'm going to call out on all occasions, day and night for that. And I'm going to trust that God is not... that. There's not something in him that's inhibiting this because something's been passed on to him that he has a sinful heart that needs to be redeemed by the blood of Christ. I'm going to pray toward that end. There's nowhere in Scripture where we see, where we see a Christian who inherits demons from his ancestors, is invaded by demons because of former occult practices, is inhabited by demons because of a transfer. No transfers. Or needs continual deliverance from demons. Some people look at Matthew 12 and say, well, if you, if you don't cast the demons out now, then they might come back. You might have more when they come back. That's not the point of Matthew 12. This is a parable warning that the unrepentant will perish. It's a much, much bigger picture here. Jesus is warning here, warning Israel about final judgment, not warning believers to do periodic self-deliverance to protect against demons coming back. So in, in light of all that, in light of all that, what if I experience something that's not in Scripture? What if I experience something not in Scripture, which we all will, which all will? And I know that there's probably a variety of things around this room that you're thinking, well, I've seen this. I've been a part of this. I've sensed this. And, and yes, there are, there are real spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The key is how do we respond according to Scripture? And my encouragement is to, number one, be open regarding the spiritual world. The last thing I ever want to do is to dull our sensitivity to that which is spiritual by pointing out some of these things. Spiritual world is real. At the same time, be discerning according to the written word. Look at your experiences through the lens of God's word. This is where I would encourage you to be aware, beware of highly charged expectations of demonic manifestations the reality is intense expectation can produce almost anything. A counselor can find what they're looking for in a counseling situation. A counselee can produce what they want to produce in a counseling situation. People who are looking for demons will find them just as people who are ignoring demons will pretend like they're not there. One of the things that I've seen in contexts around the world is, is sometimes there's almost a program time where deliverance ministry happens. And someone could be sitting in a worship service, singing praises to God, and then sitting quietly listening to the word. But then when it comes time for deliverance ministry, demons need to be cast out. And it just, we've got to be very, very careful. Beware of expectations of demonic manifestations. Beware of satanic tactics that divert us from Christ, the gospel, or God's word. Be, oh, sorry, I missed one. Beware of minimizing personal responsibility for sin. We've talked about that. And then keep the focus on the gospel. And then be confident in the truth and power of Christ revealed in his word. Be confident in it. You know, when I started studying for this, this night, it was about the time we started moving forward here with the radical experiment at Brook Hills. And if I could be honest, a variety of weird things started happening. We found ourselves in the emergency room twice in one week due to some pretty unusual things. Heather got a pretty severe infection in her knee. I was sick. To be honest, I've been sick for the last month. And I don't want to divulge information of others, but there were leaders around me who were facing a variety of different things as well that really seemed unexpected. And I started, I'm, I'm diving into this literature and I'm thinking, man, I need to start binding and casting some things out. 
Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.